Hi, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Heights, and we're so glad that you found us online. You know, at Heights, it is our desire to love and lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do that is by posting weekly content at all of the places on Facebook and on YouTube, on Instagram. We even have our own website where we're constantly posting things as well. If you're checking us out for the first time, you can go to heightschurch.org connect and let us know that you found us. And once again, we're so glad that you're here. You know, if you have ever lived near a cow pasture or a landfill in your life, you know that you can be out on a pleasant summer evening. Uh, you have grilled out some hamburgers. You're uh, sitting there eating some baked beans and potato salad and drinking Dr. Pepper, sweet tea or lemonade, whatever is your choice. And there you are, just enjoying a pleasant evening with your family, having a nice little cookout. Kids are playing cornhole. Things are great and good until the wind turns. And when the wind turns, this pleasant, nice evening now has become a pretty smelly situation. You know, you can look out at our culture right now and you can see a lot of division, a lot of hate, a lot of strife, a lot of fighting, not only in the culture, but sometimes among Christians and churches and say, man, this stinks, right? This is a really smelly situation we're in. This stinks bad. If you've been with us in the series in Ephesians, and if you're new with us, I'm just going to catch you up really quickly here. Chapters one through three, Paul has given us a breath of fresh air. In a world that right now stinks, Paul is reminding us of the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you understand the gospel and you understand how glorious and freeing what Christ has done for us, even in a world right now where all this division and strife and hatred is happening, we can say this is a breath of fresh air. This changes us. This renews passion. This renews focus. Because what Paul has been doing in the first three chapters is laying down your identity and Christ. He's reminding the church in Ephesus, he's reminding us, here's who you are in Jesus. And so we've called this series Empowering Grace, Finding Your Identity in Christ, because what's about to happen now as we start chapter four is now we're going to shift into now daily living. And so Paul's now going to be instructing us, here's how you live out this identity, and that's why we need God's empowering grace over and over in in our lives. And so this morning, I just want you to see a very simple concept within this text, but one that can be pretty challenging to us on a daily basis. And I'm going to turn your attention to the screen because I'm going to have it up there for you in case you want to write it down or take a picture of it. But it's really this, the way you should live should not cause someone to be surprised when you say you're a Christian. Right? I mean, think about that. You should be living your daily life, your identity out in Christ, that if you identified yourself as a Christian, someone should not go, really? You're a Christian? That's really what Paul's getting at. He's about to lay out just very practical ways you and I are to live every day 
that when we identify ourselves as Christians, we're giving that breath of fresh air to a culture that desperately needs it, no one is surprised when you identify yourself that way. So I want you to just pick up with me again in verse 1, and Paul's going to show us how to live out your calling, how to live out that calling. Notice in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. He said, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Now, Paul is physically in prison for his faith. He has been traveling around. He's been preaching the gospel. The Romans have been locked him up for this. So you have what's in the New Testament called the prison epistles. It's Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, that Paul writes from a physical prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Now, you may be living out your Christian life daily, and that's never going to lead you to prison for your faith. But you and I have to remember, as believers in Jesus Christ, that our faith does cost something that we ought to be distinctly different than the culture around us. And if we are distinctly different than other people, at times that's going to mean we suffer for that. At times that means we're going to be persecuted. At times that means people are going to call you names. This should not surprise you if you are being distinct from the culture around you. And so there's Paul. He's saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm in prison. Now here's what he wants you to do. I urge you, he says, I'm imploring you, I'm telling you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That word walk there means daily living. This is what Paul is saying, I want you to walk, I want you to live out each day in a worthy manner, a worthy manner saying that, that you are living up to this calling that you have in the Lord. Now, what is the calling he mentions there in verse 1 of chapter 4? Well, that's going to point us back to the first three chapters of the letter, and that's your calling of salvation. That Paul says you have been called by the Lord to be saved. That means this, and we went over this several weeks ago in chapter 1, that God loved you before you ever loved him. That God thought of you before you ever thought of him. That God chose you before you ever chose him. And I, I just love to stop and think about how good and glorious that is that God would choose us before we ever choose him. That God would love us before we ever said, God, I love you. And so Paul's saying that's that calling. That's that, that identity in chapters 1 through 3 of your salvation is rooted in Christ. And, and I wrote out, just kind of scan those first couple of chapters, and, and, and I'm going to say these very quickly, so don't try to write them all down. But I just want you to listen. And I want you to just take a moment as I read out these words and, and let them soak in for a second. Because when you just trace through the first three chapters of this letter, you see who you are in Jesus. And it is amazing to me. This is what your identity in Christ looks like. Just listen. You're blessed by Christ. You're chosen by God for salvation. You're adopted into his family. You're redeemed by Christ. You're spiritually made alive by Christ. You are created for good works by Christ. You are reconciled by Christ. You are made a member of the universal church by Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus does? Amen? 
I mean, that's your identity. And Paul's saying when you understand that identity, now you are living that out. I want to urge you to do that, Paul says. And for some of you, you're going to get that concept really quickly because you may have said this to your family or, or maybe growing up your parents said this to you. And they said, listen, you are a member of the Smith family. And as a member of the Smith family, here's what we do. Right? Or you may have been corrected. Said, you don't do that because you're a member of the Smith family. And in the Smith family, we don't do that. If your parent ever did that to you or you do that with your kids, what you're doing is you're tying your, their action into their identity. You're saying you're a member of this family and in this family, this is what we do. Or in this family, this is not what you do. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, listen, you're not doing all these things to be in the family, but because you're in God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, this is what you do. And let's just look practically at the life you and I are supposed to live out every day so that if we identify ourselves as, as believers in Jesus, no one's going to be surprised. Notice what he says in verse 2. All right, so we're going to live out this calling. We're going to walk in a manner that's worthy to the salvation we have in Christ. We're going to just take this one by one. He says you do this with all humility. With all humility. In this culture that Paul is living, in this Greco-Roman culture, humility was not prized. Humility was really looked down upon. If you are a humble person, if you will, it was really despised. You were considered weak. Why? Because they exalted the pride. You know, the proud. They said, all right, no, no, you're supposed to be prideful in your life, not humble. Well, if you think about our culture still today, there's that essence of pride. You know, we are very prideful people. We walk around thinking that we're deserved everything. We live in a treat yourself, pamper yourself, exalt yourself culture. And here's Paul saying, no, 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 no. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're not elevating ourselves. We're actually walking humbly. We're going to live humble lives. This is why when he went to Corinth and he's writing the letter to Corinth, he comes to them and he says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, I didn't come to you with, you know, great speech. I didn't come to you with high intelligence. I came in fear and trembling to deliver the word of God to you so that your faith is not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so in a culture that exalts themselves, when you and I are distinct from that, now we are showing humility. So he says, walk with humility. Notice also, live with gentleness, or your translation may say meekness, right? We're to live gently. We're to live with meekness. Now, some people say, well, meekness is weakness. But no, actually, gentleness, meekness, it means power under control. It speaks to self-control. That's who we are as believers in Jesus. We are self-control. It's power under control. And if you remember Jesus in the Beatitudes said this, and I, I love this one, Matthew 5, 5, he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, right? Jesus didn't say blessed are the proud. He said blessed are the meek. The blessed life is the gentle life. It's the meek life. Now, some of you are going to push back on me on that because you're already looking at me that way. And you're thinking, wait a minute, We've got a culture that's very anti-God. 
I'm supposed to go out and I'm supposed to fight for the Lord. And I'm supposed to get on social media and share all those posts and rail all day long on my neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. And I'm going to push back on you and say, no, 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 that's not what we're supposed to do. Because I remember growing up singing an old hymn called, The Battle Belongs to Who? The Lord. Right? Now, the battle doesn't belong to Lee. The black, it's his battle. My job is to live in such a way that's distinct from the culture to show humility and love and respect and to share the gospel. And then you're going to push right back on me again in this conversation. I don't know at what point have we sipped out the Dr. Pepper can yet, but we're having a good one. And you're going to say, well, wait a minute, Jesus got mad and Jesus flipped tables over. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to just go on the attack. Well, and I'm going to push back again. I'm going to say, well, you know, the book of Jude calls us to contend for our faith. And, and we are to give a defense for our faith, but we can do it in such a way where we don't have to flip tables. Because let me just say this, Jesus flipped tables two times and you ain't Jesus and I'm not Jesus, right? Right? And it calls us to do that. It calls us to live in such a way that's distinct from the culture that we're the breath of fresh air coming through in a smelly, stinky situation. And so we're to live humility. We're to live with gentleness, meekness, strength under control. We're to live with patience, verse 2. We're to live with patience. Can I be honest? Can we just skip that one? You guys good with skipping patience? Because yeah, what does 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says? Love is patient. And there's times where you read your Bible and you go, come on, Paul, I don't like that. And this is one of those that I'll just be honest, this is the one I struggle with the most. I'm not a very patient person at times. You may not be a very patient person at times. You've been praying lately, Lord, give me patience and hurry up, right? I mean, like, and some of you go, don't even pray for patience, right? You're gonna have that conversation. Like, you're not supposed to pray for patience because if you pray for patience, God's gonna test you and give you patience. But here's the thing about patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's something that I need to grow in. It's something that you need to grow in. It's something that we can pray for because God needs to develop patience in each one of us because as it's a fruit of the Spirit, that's now what we should be exhibiting in our Christian life over and over. We're growing in patience. So he says we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling, of our salvation, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now that means to be not short-tempered, but long-tempered with each other. We are bearing with each other in love. And then notice verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice what Paul's saying here, and, and notice it carefully. He's taught us in chapters 2 and 3 that it is Christ that tears down the dividing walls between us. That it is Christ through the Holy Spirit that brings unity to us. All right? We don't create the unity. The Holy Spirit creates the unity among us. But what Paul's saying we do is we maintain it. We keep it. We preserve it. We keep on working toward the unity that is created by the Holy Spirit. 
And, and I, I know if you're here a couple weeks ago, I gave you a, an illustration out of the Jesus Revolution movie. And, and I was thinking again this week of just kind of how to illustrate this point of unity. And, and I told Sandra, I said, all I can think about is the Jesus Revolution movie and the hippie movement because it's the best I can use in modern day context to describe Jews and Gentiles in the book of Ephesians. But if you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie, if you haven't, I encourage you to see it. It's a great movie. I've seen it two times. But there is a scene in the movie that literally makes me tear up. Right? Now, if you know me at all, I'm, I can be an emotional person and I can cry. I will cry at any father and son moment in any movie. Right? A father and son moment in any movie will get me to tears. I just, just being a dad of two boys, that's one that always gets me. But there's things that just always get me. And when I watched this movie two times, within the span of a week, this one scene got me both times. And here's what happened. Hippies are starting to come into Chuck Smith's church. He's been reaching hippies with the gospel. And so during church one day, you have all the hippies sitting on the right side of the church and all the church people sitting on the left side of the church. Day before, chairs are all sitting in pews, right? So here are all the hippies over here and all the church people over here. And Chuck Smith stands up, the pastor, and he says, listen, we want to be a church for all people. And we want to start reaching all people. And essentially, that's what we're going to start doing. And so some church members on this side got up and they just started walking out. And then there was this one old man. He's sitting about the third row. And he gets up and he steps in the aisle. And he looks back toward the door at his friends. And his friends have paused at the back door looking at him like, come on. Come on, let's, let's go. And that old man just looks at them, looks over at the hippies, walks over, sits down in his suit. You know, that was the day when all of us wore suits, right? In his suit, put his arms around the hippies, and he said, let's go. When do we start? And man, I just, I teared up at both times of that because I remember these words in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. You know, when you read that list that Paul's given us and you grasp the gospel, then this becomes what we do. If you find yourself going, this isn't me, I don't see these things in my life, then you have to go back and say, do I have a grasp and an understanding of the gospel? Because the more I understand my identity in Jesus, the more I understand what Christ has done in my life, these are the things that are coming out of me. It is humility, it is gentleness, it is patience, it is bearing with one another in love, it's maintaining unity among my brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be what's happening on a daily basis so that if we identify ourselves as a Christian to someone that knows us, they're not surprised. So what should not be coming out of us is a love of controversy. What should not be coming out of us is a love of fighting. What should not be coming out of us is a love of division and strife and hatred if you understand the gospel. And so Paul says, live out your calling. But notice, secondly, he's going to say, live out your confession. He says, live out your confession. Let's pick up in verse 4. He says, there's one body, one spirit, 
just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What Paul does here in this section is he is illustrating our unity amongst each other with the unity among the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in your Bible, but it's the concept that we worship one God that expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what you see in the Godhead among Father, Son, Spirit throughout Scripture is a perfect relationship, a perfect unity. And so Paul gives you seven one statements there that is showing us this early Christian creed that we see now illustrated in how you and I are to live for each other in daily life. And let me go over these quickly. He says, first, there is one body. That means there is one universal church that expresses itself out in local churches, all right? So that means this, there's one universal church. That means brothers and sisters all around the world that Christians are together. We worship together the same God in many different languages, but there's one universal church that's now lived out in local churches. Sometimes people say, well, why are there a bunch of local churches? Well, there's a bunch of local churches in the New Testament, right? There's, there's churches in Jerusalem. Paul is writing to Christians and churches in Ephesus. He's writing to churches in Philippi. He wrote to a church in Corinth. All right, so what you see is this universal church, this one body that's universal all around our world that's lived out in expressions in local churches. But notice he also says on the list there's one spirit. We share a common origin in the Holy Spirit. There is one hope. We share this common hope in Christ. He says there's one Lord, and this one Lord is Jesus. And it's interesting that the early Christians, when they said, we worship Jesus as Lord, then they are essentially saying we do not worship Caesar as Lord. And it's always fascinating to me that the Romans looked at the Christians and said, you guys are a bunch of pagans because you worship Caesar. That's who we're supposed to worship. And the early Christians are like, no, that's not God. We worship the one true God. He is Lord. So by saying Jesus is Lord of your life, you're saying you're not Lord and no one else is Lord, but salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one Lord, there's one faith, this common beliefs of the gospel message, one baptism. We share this common experience of being baptized into Christ Paul says in verse 6, there's one God and Father. We share a common Father. We are God's adopted children. And I'm going to break this out a little bit more for you next week. But here's why we work toward that unity. Here's why it's important that you and I live out this gospel message. Because I want you to pick up in verse 14. In verse 14, he says this. He says, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
into love. And we're going to get into that more next week, but let me just give you a little appetizer. What Paul's showing you there is this, that you and I are supposed to live out our Christian life every day in such a way that's no surprise to anyone when we identify ourselves as Christian. We do that for each other. Because Paul says there, there's one head, and the head is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the head of this church. Christ Jesus is the pastor of Heights Baptist Church. He is the chief shepherd of us. I'm one of the under shepherds. I'm one of the pastors, but I'm not the pastor that Colossians 1:23 Paul says that Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the universal church and he is the head of every local church. And when the local churches stop recognizing Jesus as the head, then the body is decapitated and it's going to die. It is Christ who is the head. He's our head. But did you notice what Paul says there? then we're all joined together as the body. And we need Christ as our head. We need him as our true shepherd and true leader. But we need each other because we're now joined together. That now Paul illustrates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he says some of us in the body of Christ, we're like an eye. Some of us are like a hand. Some of us are like a foot. And we all need the feet and the hands and the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth and all those things. We are that body now in Christ. And you and I are dependent on Jesus. And you and I are held together dependent on each other. That means this. I want to encourage you in living out your life as a believer in Jesus, not just to attend a church. Don't just attend. And I'm glad you're here. Like, I, I really am. I'm glad you're here. But I want to call you lovingly to stop just attending. Plug into a life group. We believe that relationships are important here at Heights. We believe that the Bible does not teach that Christian life's to be lived alone. So one of our values is connecting with each other. That's why we have these things called life groups. We can get together and study the Bible together. We have them on Sunday mornings at 9 and some meet during the week. You can find out more about them in the lobby at our life group board. But get involved in a life group. Find a place to serve. Find a place to use those spiritual gifts to build up the faith of other people. Like I, 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 I don't understand sometimes when Christians goes, man, I just don't want to serve anybody. Don't, man, you get excited. You should be excited about serving other people. Why? Because when you use those spiritual gifts, it's literally building up the faith in others. And if we have a good grasp of the gospel in our lives, we should go, boy, I want to go serve some people just like Jesus did. And so I want to serve. I want to connect with other people. I want to encourage you to give. If you're not giving at all, I want to encourage you to. Why? Because giving matters in a local church. There are some things that, yes, giving, it goes to administrative things like lights and AC. Amen? You're glad for that one? Right? In our church in Pennsylvania, we had two big boilers. Now, here in Texas, we got to really maintain the air conditioning units, and, and up north, you really need to maintain the, the furnaces, right? And we had two big furnaces, and uh, we were setting aside money for one furnace that had been so old that we were always like, that furnace can die any day, right? And I was in finance meeting one time, and they said, well, we don't have money to fix both furnaces. What's going to happen if both of them go down? And I said, well, I guarantee you, if it's mid-February and both furnaces go down, and we have no heat on a Sunday morning, all we need to do is pass a basket, and we're going to probably get the money for that furnace, right? And I guarantee you, in mid-August, 
we run out of money and all the AC units go around down here, we're going to pass a basket and we'll be all right. So some of that money, it goes to things like lights and AC units, and we're all glad and blessed by that. But here, what I love at Heights Baptist Church is we give away 10% of all undesignated offerings that you give. You give a dollar this morning, a dime's going out the door right into missions. And that means literally all your money is going around the world to 104 missionaries and 5,000, or excuse me, about 5,000 missionaries in 104 countries all around our world today equipping other men and women to share the gospel in contexts and languages for others to understand. Your money today is helping to go to disaster relief all around our country. Your money today is helping to go to six seminaries supported by the Southern Baptist Convention where you're literally helping to fund the next generations of pastors and missionaries. Now let's just talk locally. Your money goes out to where we can do things like vacation Bible school, and you're going to have hundreds of kids here on campus in a couple of weeks that many of you think, praise the Lord, are serving them. And, and, and people are going to get saved. I mean, we had a night of mayhem in our kids' ministry just a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Matt did a great job wearing a, a Darth Vader costume and uh, sharing John 14, 6, and three kids got saved. Amen? Why is that? You gave. Every time you give, we go. Every time you give, we're able to do more and more things as a church. And so I want to encourage you, just don't attend, but find a way to plug in. Plug into life groups. Plug into serving. If you're not giving, start giving. Continue to keep giving because the gospel keeps going out because of what you're doing. We need Christ as our head. We need each other in our Christian lives. You have had to have this conversation with someone before. Or you have had the conversation said to you, or you're about to. There is a time in life where you reach a certain age where a teacher, a coach, a parent, a family member, or a friend had to sit you down. And they got eyeball to eyeball with you. And they said, I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can, but you have reached a certain age to where you need to start wearing deodorant <laughs> because you stink. And for some of us as parents of young kids, you're thinking, I need to have that conversation. <laughs> for some of us that volunteer in the elementary and preschool hallways on Sunday morning, we go, we need to tell that parent to have that conversation. Because <laughs> I've walked in on many Wednesday nights where I do game time with teen kid, and I'm like, whew. All right, well, it's pungent tonight, but I'm glad you're here. And what happens, because we've all been there, is if you don't apply that deodorant or that perfume or cologne to your body, you're going to walk around with the stink and a smell. And that deodorant and that cologne or that perfume, when that outside agent is applied, it takes away the stink. And now you're more pleasant, quite honestly, to be around. And this is what Jesus Christ does in our lives. Because, see, sin is that stink. And when you and I live contrary to what Paul has said as the pattern of our life, now people don't want to be around you. Now the gospel does not make sense to them because you're living contrary to what you say Jesus has done. So here's the good news. 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9 says this, If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, it is God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning, when you invite Jesus Christ into your life, it is Christ who gives you a new smell, if you will. It is Christ who gives you a new life. So now as you're living out that identity, you become a breath of fresh air in a culture that needs that breath of fresh air. And so this morning, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to urge you to live in such a way that if you identify yourself as a Christian, that no one is surprised. I'm going to invite you to stand right now with me. You know, this morning, we're going to transition after I pray into a time of invitation and, and last song. And I'm going to invite you today as we sing to make a decision. And maybe that decision you need to make today is to become a believer in Jesus Christ. You say, listen, I've got sin in my life and I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says you just place your faith and trust in him. And as you do that, that you are forgiven of your sin, that you have new life with now with God that lasts all of eternity, that when you die, God just takes you on home to be at heaven with him. And so as we sing in a moment, I'm invite you to come. You can just come right to me in the middle and just simply say something. Listen, I'm ready to follow Jesus. That's all you got to say, and I'm going to know exactly what you need, and I'm going to be able to pray with you and talk with you, help you take that step of faith. Maybe today is to say, listen, I, I've got some stink in my life. I've got sin I need to confess. Right with what John says in 1 John 1, 9, I need Jesus to forgive me some things. And I'm going to invite you to go to the Lord. And just ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you and to give you that new righteousness and, and that new life this morning. Maybe today is to say, I need to be baptized as a believer in Christ. <laughs> I know Jesus, but I've never given that public profession of faith that I belong to the Lord. We baptized Cohen last week. We've got another baptism coming up in a couple of weeks. And so I invite you, if you need to do that, to let us know. There are going to be folks down front ready to pray for you, pray with you. Maybe there's something else on your mind and heart. We'll be happy to receive you and pray for you. But let's go to the Lord this morning. Father, I thank you for who you are. And Father, I pray this morning that I have the commitment in my life that every person here that is a believer in Jesus has the commitment to live in such a way that we are providing a breath of fresh air in a culture that desperately needs it. Father, I pray you forgive us where we fall very short of those things and help us to continue to pursue that way of life that is going to show us distinct from others around us. So Lord, I pray for first and foremost for those that need their eternity forever changed today. Those that have walked in and they're not a believer in Jesus, I pray today they're going to walk out now on their way to heaven with their sin forgiven and new life with Christ. Pray for those that need to be baptized as believers. They need to take that step to let people unashamedly know they're believers in Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray for what's on people's minds and hearts. You know them. And so, Lord, we're just coming. Just as we sang earlier, you're the God of Moses, the God of Jacob, the God of Mary, the God of, of, of Martha. And Lord, you've answered prayers then in their lives, and we're praying you answer them in our lives as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.